As we continue in worship again this evening, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. That's Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. And we'll be picking up our reading at verse 11. Though we'll be reading from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, our principal focus will be on verses 19 to 22. But by beginning in verse 11, we do have a context that I think will be helpful for us in the time to come. And so once again, that is Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading there at verse 11. Here once again, the word of our God, holy, inerrant, and infallible. Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Amen. And may the Lord add to us once more the blessing from his word this evening. We begin this evening with what is really the start of a new series. A series on the church. And immediately, friend, I think it's easy enough for us to discern that this kind of thinking, thinking about the body of Christ and particularly about its visibility, is something that most people would say is not really calculated to do the most good for the people of God. Of course, some are going to say evangelical doctrines are most important. Preaching about the gospel is what we require. That is, how sinners are made right with God. Others are going to say that the reality is we we more need how to live in the church than we have to think about the church itself. But friend, what I want you to note here is that as we embark on this series that God willing will last for some months, we're simply recognizing a fact that's riven right throughout the scriptures. There is no body, there is no institution under heaven today that takes up so much time and focus in the word of God as does the church. And friend, we can even go much further than that. When we think about the church as a visible institution, there is no other body, friend, for which the entire world stands. 
Those are the words of Christ in Matthew 24. The days are not shortened, he says, of the end. Why? For the elect's sake. You see, friend, as far as the word of God is concerned, this is well worth our time. Not just to think about how we live in the church, and not just to think how we are numbered among those who believe in Christ, but to think about that which God has instituted itself. And our text before us this evening does that very thing. It sets before us a picture of the church of Jesus Christ, and maybe in ways that are rather staggering. I want you to notice, friend, that as we look at Ephesians 2, we are kept in that context that really begins with the prayer of chapter 1. The Apostle prays that these Christians here would know hope, riches, and power as they all are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm referring to that prayer, of course, that you find starting in verses 16 and ending with verse 23 of chapter 1. That's the context. The Apostle is praying that the Lord God would reveal to these Christians who are gathered together in Ephesus these truths. That in Christ there is hope. In Christ there are riches. And in Christ alone they have power. Or is that power known? And so as we come to our text this evening in chapter 2, the Apostle is unfolding those very themes. And if he looks to a Gentile congregation, he looks to a congregation that knows very well, at least they should know very well, the kind of power that the Apostle refers to in his prayer. A power that really transforms them from being part of a community that was entirely without God and brought into a community that he calls here nothing less than the household of God. And he says all of these things are wrought through the power of the redemption wrought in Christ. That's really our context for this evening. And what he does for us is he sets before us this idea. In verses 1 to 10, this idea of spiritual resurrection. And then in the verses to come, how that resurrection influences as well their covenant identity. How do they stand now as people in relation to God? As we're looking at our text that is principally... Um, verses 11 to the end of chapter 2, I want you to notice a few things. Just as I've said before, the Apostle is drawing a contrast here, a contrast that we can't miss, because it features very highly in this major point that the Apostle drives home. And that is, there is a real distinction now made between you as you were once and who you are as you are now. And the first thing that he draws is this idea of the past and present. First, he says, in verse 11, you were Gentiles. And what does that mean? Well, you were aliens, strangers. To what? If you see there, verses 11 and 12 tell us they were without the covenants of promise. They had no hope, and they were without God in the world. That is what they were. And that was the consequence of their identity. That's who they were in the past. And then he comes into the present. Who are they now? And friend, this is the striking piece. As you, come to the, as you come to the Ephesians of verse 19, something radical has changed. Where once before, they were strangers, aliens. Those who did not belong to whatever body, whatever society you might think they would. Now know what he says in verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. That word fellow citizens occurs nowhere else in the Greek New Testament but in this text. This is the only case where you have that. 
This word fellow citizens refers to something very concrete. Uh, if I could translate it, it's something that comes very clearly in our own English rendition, but, but the idea is, is just this, that you are together with another in a political relationship. And so, you stand related to one another as you stand in the same state. It doesn't refer merely to citizens of a city. It refers primarily to those who are under one political umbrella, so to speak. And he says that this is true of the Ephesians. Now, he says that they are fellow citizens with the saints. And that's important for us to grasp. He's telling us with whom they are fellow citizens. But there's a very obvious question that we could ask at this stage. Fellow citizens in what? I think often we supply the answer to that question that's not in the text itself. They are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. Which, theologically, is true. But you note that in this text, the kingdom of God is not mentioned once, explicitly. There's only one state, there's only one political entity that even stands in chapter 2 at all. And that takes us back to verse 11. I want you to note this. He says here, You were Gentiles in the flesh who who were called uncircumcision. And then down to verse 12. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is the only state that the apostle has in mind in chapter 2. My friend, why is that striking? We'll have time in a few minutes to look at more of the detail that lies behind that. But the point is at least crucial. If the commonwealth of Israel, as the apostle understands it here, is that to whom the promises belong, to whom the covenant belongs, he says that these Gentile Christians are now made fellow citizens with the saints, are now somehow engrafted into that commonwealth. We can't miss that, but we need to hasten on to another distinction that the apostle makes. He makes a distinction not only between the past and the present, but also he makes a distinction between the external and the internal. Again, as you look at verses 11 and 12, he ties together the identity of these Ephesians prior to their conversion as being Gentiles and uncircumcised. And the idea is they were not unbelievers because of their circumcision, but their uncircumcision represented their unbelief. It stands here as a sign, if you will, as a kind of symbol of their being alienated from the promises of God. That's how the Apostle uses it in this text. But then as you come forward, I want you to notice this. This changes rather drastically. They go from, at one time, being externally removed from the covenant, externally removed from the commonwealth of Israel, to then being actually made, as he says in verses 21 and 22, the temple of the Lord, the habitation of God. What we can't miss is that the Apostle is drawing on two kinds of aspects of one people. Their identity before their conversion, uncircumcised, ergo, outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Now they are fellow citizens, part of the household of God, which that word household, by the way, does not mean a nuclear family, Uh, mother, father, children. Household in the ancient world always incorporated slaves as well as naturally born children. Spouses as well as extended family. He says you belong now to this. Now that relates very much to being part of this outward community. This commonwealth of Israel. 
But in verses 21 and 22, you have the internal stress. They are not merely fellow citizens with the commonwealth, with those in the commonwealth. They are also actually made a holy temple in the Lord, habitation of God through the Spirit. My friend, as we look at this text, we can't miss the idea that what the apostle is saying in the church at Ephesus, it's very simple. They have actually been made into a new community. In fact, they've been engrafted into one community, the commonwealth of Israel. And friend, as the apostle looks at this, he sees it in two aspects. He sees this engrafting, of course, in those aspects that cannot be seen. Those internal realities that are invisible to the eyes of men. But he also has respect to those external themes, those features that can be discerned by men. And what you have in this text then, beloved, is a very clear picture of the church. A church that the apostle says is simultaneously visible and invisible. And what I want us to see this evening as we embark on this series is what the apostle says here about the visibility of this church. What we have here is a a teaching that Christ has instituted a visible commonwealth of grace. A visible commonwealth of grace. And I want us to see that in three headings. First, the creation. Then the constitution. And lastly, the conduct of those who are in this commonwealth. First of all, the creation. Friend, we can't miss the fact that the apostle is making a very profound statement that is too often overlooked. These Gentiles, who once lacked that external sign, and so also had with that the external alienation from the covenant community, are now made fellow citizens with the saints. They're now part of a commonwealth that does not begin in Acts 2. But the apostle ties them integrally to the commonwealth of Israel. Beloved, we can't miss this. In fact, it runs right through our text. He tells us in verses 11 and 12, of course, this contrast between they were once being alienated and now they're being engrafted. But then as he moved to verses 15 and following, those ordinances no longer stand to separate them. From that community. And then as you come down to verse 20. They are built. This church is built upon. Note here. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now what's striking is beloved. As you look at this text. He's saying very pointedly. These Ephesian Christians. Now have something in common. With those of the old covenant. A friend that runs. Very contrary to how most people think about the church. But according to the Apostle Paul, they belong to the same commonwealth in some sense. Because they are built upon the same foundation. That foundation being that of the apostles and of the prophets. Those whom God had used in the old to further revelation, the prophets. And God would use those in the new to do the same, the apostles. It is one community that the Apostle here preaches. But what we can't miss from this, friend, is that this means then that the Ephesians... In an external sense, because of course the commonwealth of Israel was external as well as internal. She is externally made fellow citizens with the saints of old. In other words, friend, what's striking about this text is the Christians that are in view here, as the apostle sees them, they have some relationship with even the likes of Elijah and Elisha. They're bound in some way to all of those of old. 
who are part of the commonwealth of Israel, the covenant community. Now, if that's the case, friend, we need to expect that the scriptures are going to speak very similarly about one and the other. And that's precisely what we find. The compendium of the covenant in the old covenant was simply this, right? You shall be, note, my people, and I shall be your God. What what does the Lord say of the church in the new covenant? I want you to notice 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 16. What agreement, says the Apostle, hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezra commands those people under the Old Covenant to separate themselves from the heathen. Note how the Apostle again in our text, 2 Corinthians 6, now verse 17, addresses the church. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. A continuity in commands we can't miss. And we can't miss that, friend, because the scriptures are, the scriptures are teaching us very pointedly that there is a similar, similarity in the promises that are given to the external body. There is a similarity that, is even, that even lies in her distinctions. You see, the world was distinct from Israel because Israel was called peculiarly the people of God. When Paul talks to the church at Corinth, as he will to the church of Ephesians and the church of Ephesus, he says that you are peculiarly the people of God. You, instead of the world, are made fellow citizens with the saints. There's a distinction that's made. And why is that? Well, friend, of course, it's one of the reasons why that is because peculiar things happen for those who are in the church. I'm speaking here in the church in its most broad sense, in its most broad visible sense. What has God given to this church? Well, friend, you remember as the, as the covenant saints of old refer to all the glories that they have, one of the chief glories that they see in Psalm 147 is the fact that the Lord God has given Jacob his word. As you come to Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle speaks about what has been given to the visible church Catholic That's the visible church universal. He's been given ministers of that word. It's been given to that community that has not been given to the world. Those who are made part of the commonwealth of Israel have a peculiar, a distinct character because they have peculiar, distinct privileges. And so what you have in this text is as the apostle reinforces this idea that the Ephesians should remember the great power of God. He draws for them this idea that they have come into a commonwealth that is shining, that is visibly adorned with grace. And he says, this is something that you should not take for granted. You see, when the apostle looks at the church visible, he sees something that is one distinct from the world and also something that is illustrious, something that is beautiful. Something that shows to us, even in this life, the power of the grace of God. But friend, that leads us to that second point. And this is perhaps the thing that you're anticipating as we look through this text. What is the constitution of this church then? What is the constitution of this commonwealth? And friend, the reality is, as you look at this text, as he draws this continuity between the commonwealth of Israel and that community now to which the Ephesians have been brought... He doesn't say that something has radically changed. 
where the commonwealth was only external, and now this commonwealth to which they've been brought is purely internal. In fact, it goes, we can go a step further. He doesn't say to the church at Ephesus, you have been brought into a community that is unmixed. You see, whenever Moses came out of Egypt, of course, throughout the scriptures, not only at the time of the Exodus, but even through the writer of the Hebrews, it's often emphasized that those who came up out of Egypt were a mixed multitude. And yes, of course, that was ethnically true, but it was also true, of course, as it bore itself out in the wilderness. There were those, some of those who possessed real faith, and then there were some of those who belonged to the covenant externally who did not. And what's striking in our text, friend, is that in Ephesians 2, the apostle doesn't say that the distinction has been made such that only those now to whom you are united in this fellow citizenship are unmixed. No, they've come into a commonwealth that the scriptures teach from the beginning to be a mixed house, a mixed multitude. And why is that so important? Well, friend, it's important because it reminds us how one comes into this visible, universal community. I'm not speaking here, of course, about the particular local church at this stage. I'm asking the question, how does one become part of this visible, universal body? And as you look through the scriptures, friend, the way that you come into this, it's precisely as our catechism puts it, is simply by profession of faith. And you coming in under your parents' profession of faith as well. It's what you have, for instance, in Acts 2.41. Those who believed were then baptized, were then brought into the covenant community. That's the idea. Hebrews 10 Another text that indicates this for us shows us that there were those who were brought into the covenant community who eventually departed, and as John will later say, they departed because they were never really among us. Does that mean that they weren't part of the community? No, he's actually saying quite the opposite. They were part of the community in in one sense. They were really among us in one sense, but in another sense they weren't. In another sense they weren't. They had professed to be among us. They professed the faith. They professed, as Peter says in in 2 Peter 2, 1, they professed even that they were the redeemed of the Lord, but they denied it in time. Friend, that's precisely what you had in the Old Covenant. It's precisely what the apostles anticipate and actually experience in the New Covenant. You say, well, hang on a second. I thought the apostles, of course, were infallible judges on who came in and who did not come into the church. Well, friend, of course, when they spake under inspiration, they were infallible. But you see what Peter does in Acts 5. He brings in Simon Magus. Why? Because Simon Magus has made a profession of faith. He's baptized, Simon is. And then within a few lines, Peter pronounces excommunication. Simon was really externally part of the covenant community because of a profession of faith. But he later showed that internally, he really did not belong. A real external connection to God without a real internal faith. The apostle here in Ephesians 2 does not deny at any stage. In fact, he affirms positively that just as it was so in Israel of old, so it is so in the Israel now newly constituted. Beloved, this is the very same thing that you have, of course, in the parables that we read in Matthew 13. The Lord has a field 
a field that we're not supposed to take as the world without the gospel, but really as the world is, as it's considered part of the visible church. The visible church has both wheat and tares planted within her. Take again the analogy of the apostle in Second Timothy. God has a household in which some vessels are for honor and some vessels are for dishonor. They all belong to the house in some sense. But oh friend, it's a mixed thing. It's a mixed commonwealth, if I can put it this way. Now friend, this is something we can't miss. Because it reminds us what the visible church isn't. And how we're not supposed to see it. There are some, uh, the Congregationalists of old, the Anabaptists before them, the Brethren, other Dispensationalists and even Baptists today would tell us that the goal is always that the visible church reflects only those who are part of the invisible church. And so often they'll make rigorous attempts to discern who are really genuine professors and who are not. Who are true converts and who are not. You see, beloved, as you look throughout the scriptures, that's not the idea of the visible church that we're supposed to have. Yes, of course, we should not allow scandalous people to come in if their profession is contradicted blatantly by their lives. But it's not for the session. It's not for the congregation to determine one's genuine place before God because God never gifted the church with that ability. No, he calls all who profess faith and says that you who profess faith belong to this community. But the reality is in belonging to this community, you are not necessarily tied to Christ. You can't ride into the kingdom of heaven based upon the assessment of your elders. You can't ride into the kingdom of heaven based on the assessment of the congregation. No, because even the visible church, like Israel of old, is a mixed commonwealth. And that by God's design. Now friend, that leads us to the question then, how are they members? And what does this really mean? Much ink has been spilt on this, especially in the 17th century, but allow me to say some very basic ideas, give you some very basic ideas that arise from it. Rutherford writes this, the invisible and not the visible church is the principal prime and only proper subject with whom the covenant of grace is made, to whom all, all the promises do belong, and to whom all titles, styles, properties, and privileges of special note do belong. It's with the invisible church. Those who are truly in Christ that the promises really belong, says Rutherford. But that brings us to a question. How does that look in the visible church? He goes on to write this. He says, the scriptures always speak of men according to their... Oh, I apologize. He goes on to tell us here that all believers as believers before God have right to the seals of the covenant. These to whom the covenant and body of the character belongeth. But to these, the seals belongeth. But, in the orderly church way, the seals are not to be conferred by the church upon persons because they believe, but because they profess their believing. That's the constitution of this church. That's what makes up her membership. Those who actually make a profession of faith publicly. That's what really brings you into this visible commonwealth, mixed as it is. It is your profession of faith. And that leads us to our third point. If it is only profession of faith, 
that brings us in what we're calling here the orderly church way. How is this church supposed to look? What are the conduct? What's the kind of conduct that the people of God who are so called here supposed to supposed to have? I want you to notice, friend, that as the apostle describes them, there are a few themes that we can't miss. We can't miss, first of all, that he speaks to the Ephesians as though they were all true professors. As, as in all true converts. And I think Charles Hodge is helpful in this text. He says, the scriptures always speak of men according to their profession, calling those who profess faith believers and those who confess Christ Christians. And in this case, so they speak of the visible church as the true, that is, invisible church, and predicated the former what is only true of the latter. You see what the apostle is doing? He's treating the church of Ephesus here according to their profession of faith. He's saying these things are supposedly true of you. And why is he saying that? Friend, he's not saying that because he's seen the books of election. He's saying that as Peter Peter did with Simon Magus, because the profession of faith has been made. And he treats them according to that profession. But if they have professed faith, there are consequences that come to the people who have made that profession. And first of all, the bearing upon their conduct is very basic. They are to be a holy people. If they have professed faith, if they belong to this common, if they belong to this commonwealth, then their lives should reflect that. I mean, friend, note what he says here. In verse 21, he says, You are a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. The thing that the Apostle Paul says really singles out the covenant community is the evident holiness of her members. And if you have professed Christ, the logic runs, then this must also be true of you. Now friend, when the Apostle describes temples of God in other texts, he describes an individual man and so has a true convert in view. But friend, when you and I make professional faith publicly and are brought into this universal, visible church, this commonwealth, you and I are saying that we are covenanted to be holy. That's the character of the church of God. She has covenanted to be the Lord's people. Now friend, you cannot miss this. The apostle in 1 Corinthians 3 says that there are real implications if you are this temple. You're not to give yourselves over to your lusts. Even your body is under subjection to this profession. He'll go on to tell us, of course, that we are a people who have been bought with a price, and therefore we're not to live to ourselves any longer. That's what we profess, friend, when we come into the church of Christ. When we make a public profession, that's what we're saying. We will live as people who are purchased. We will live as people who will not give ourselves over to our lusts. And the apostle here predicates of the church of Ephesus, even though it's a mixed body, he can expect as much. He found as much in the book of Acts. He predicates this of them all, because they've all professed to be this. But what we can't miss either, friend, is that as you look at this text, not only is the apostle driving home this idea that that he's going to treat the Ephesians according to their profession of faith, he's also driving home the idea that the Ephesians should look at each other in the same light. Beloved, when he says, you are now fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, 
When he says you are one building, fitly framed together, and growing as a holy temple in the Lord. Oh, beloved, he's telling us very simply, this is how you were supposed to look at the person sitting beside you, who also has made a public profession. You belong to the same household. And that too has implications. You see, friend, if we belong to the same household, we have to ask the question, are the things predicated of the church of Ephesus beforehand, that joining together in harmony, that establishing the church in peace, is that true of us? And friend, we have to, we have, to have a biblical definition of what peace and harmony are. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Harmony is not the lack of discord. Peace is something far more radical. It is a desire for one another's most important well-being. It's, it's, it's the highest good that's desired for each other. There's a real desire and a real love that's in view there. This text drives us to ask ourselves the question, is this how I look at the church? You say, well, I, I, I think that there are some in the church who perhaps are false professors. Well, beloved, the apostle here deals with men according to their profession. As long as they've not been removed through censure. Are you higher or greater than the apostle? If not, then you look at your brother and your sister according to their profession. You see, what your brother and sister are saying in Christ when they profess faith is that Christ has died for them. He has spilled his blood for their good. For their everlasting good. He has formed them by his own grace to be vessels of honor. He cherishes them above all the worlds. We should look at them the same. There are so many applications that we could draw down on from here, friend, but there's a very simple one that I want to drive home. You belong to a household now. That's what the Apostle is saying. You belong to a household. And what do we think of, of a man who's so in, in, enveloped in his business that he neglects his home? A friend, we would say that he's lost sight of the most important things in his life. What do we say of a person who, who works tirelessly to form relationships outside of his home while neglecting his own wife or children? We say he's lost sight of what's most important. Friend, what do we say of a believer who works tirelessly to form connections outside of those? And I know I'm making an application to the particular church, but we need to. What do we say of a Christian who says, I belong to a covenant community that has no real love and no real interest to be part of it? The Apostle challenges this drastically. You belong to a household. And your calling is to act like it. My calling is to act like it. We'll close with just this thought. This text tells us that Christ himself has instituted this commonwealth. It is formed by him. And yes, tares may be planted among her. And in one sense, that's to be expected in the visible church because Christ has said it would be so. 
But when you and I think about the church, do we really think in the terms of the apostle? Are we a people who really reflect on our brothers and sisters according to their profession? And actually cherish them as people for whom Christ died? But the second application is so very simple. For those of you who are in Christ, beloved, you have in this text a wonderful reminder that it is through the blood of Christ that you have been made a temple of the Lord, the habitation of God through His Spirit. Now that is true only of those who are in the invisible church, those two lines. But beloved, He'll never neglect that temple that He has created with the mortar of His Son's own blood. He'll never leave those living stones that are held together by His own Son, built upon Christ's cornerstone and foundation. Beloved, as we live in the church together, that is the comfort that you and I are supposed to draw from this text. God neglects not his own household. He does not overlook one member for the sake of the other. He is a careful and a tender husbandman. And praise be to our God that he is such. Amen.